there are essentially four types of conflict resolution. Which one does your company's culture embrace? Running a service business can be hard. It is not unusual for business owners in industries like contracting, home repair, auto repair, business-to-business -business services like janitorial, IT and accounting, and many others to feel overwhelmed by all the priorities facing them at any given time. Between addressing the needs of the customers, managing the employees, figuring out the financials, and getting processes in place, feeling like you're making significant progress on your business journey can be difficult. Welcome to Service Industry Success, hosted by Brian Harding. Each week, Brian will look at real-world strategies for building the business you are dreaming of, while also sharing tactics to get through some of the most frustrating parts of business ownership with a lot more ease. Let's get started. So today's topic uh, is a result of something I heard a couple weeks ago. Uh, like most things I talk about, this is not my idea, so I want to be real clear about that up front. Um, I heard about this actually at church. Um, there was a guest couple speaking, and they were talking about, you know, their lives and how they'd stayed married for something like forty-five years or fifty-five years. And it was an it was an older couple, and they they were uh, talking about how they did it, you know, and giving some advice for you know a lot of married people and things like that about how they had uh, dealt with um, the good and bad life throws it at all of us. And they, they had some very specific examples. They talked about, you know, medical things that happened and other things that happened in a relationship. And they brought up this topic of these four types of um, conflict resolution. And, you know, because of what I do, kind of everything I hear is filtered through my brain, my brain's lens of, well, how does this apply to a business? How does this apply to work? It's just kind of how my brain works. So, uh, it occurred to me that this is very applicable to uh, workplace cultures. Um, so the four basic types of conflict resolution that they discussed, and I'm sure if we did like a deep dive, we might come up with one or two more, but this is a pretty good list, I think. Um, the first one is concession, or you might call it accommodation. The second one is competition. The third one is compromise. And the fourth one is collaboration. Now we would all kind of hear that list and go, well, of course, Brian, you're going to say the one that matters or the one that's better for best for business is collaboration. And yeah, that's where we're going to, we're going to end up going there uh, for sure. Um, and I want to stress that none of these things are, none of these types of conflict resolution are bad per se. They all have times where they're appropriate or applicable. That would make sense. Um, there's also the big kind of uh, thing hanging out there, which is the opposite of resolution but very common in workplaces, and that is conflict avoidance. I would argue that conflict avoidance is way more prevalent than conflict resolution, good or bad. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, conflict avoidance and, and you know, how that, I mean, we all know that it has a negative impact in most cases, not always, but oftentimes people are reluctant to address conflict at work and I want to take just a couple minutes and talk about that. And this is, you know, these are always things that I've seen based on my experience. For those of you who don't know, my career started, my first real job, I was a teamster. I was a crane operator and a machine operator. And in the steel industry, I did that for about five years. So I, I got to, to see what it's like to work in a, a union environment where, you know, the folks I worked with out in the warehouse were not necessarily 
on board with the, the things the people in the office wanted to do and vice versa. It was very confrontational at times, um, comp, uh, competitive at times, a lot of passive aggressive behaviors. So that was my real first, my first real job was that I did that for about five years and then I left the union to get into management. Um, as I've said numerous times, I was probably the worst supervisor that ever walked the earth when I first started. I was 24 years old. The group of people I was supervising were largely much older than me, um, you know, 20, 30 years older than me. And they were kind of a rough and tumble group that um, didn't have a real problem with handling problems in the parking lot, <laughs> you might say. Um that was my so that was my first job in like management supervision. Uh, I left that industry to get into a different industry. You know, I got into plumbing and and uh, I decided I didn't want to be a plumber, but I really enjoyed the industry. I enjoyed doing the sales, so I took a sales job, and then I, that worked into um, a situation where I went back into the steel industry and I did process improvement for a couple of years. And I, I really focused on procedures and processes and Kaizen, lean thinking, all that kind of stuff, and ISO 9000 kinds of things. And then I got, you know, involved in um, more service-based industry stuff. You know, I was an assistant general manager. I was a general manager of a, of a branch at age 33 where I had 63 employees. I was the youngest in the country that, at 33 doing that job. Had to learn a ton about accounting and marketing and advertising and sales and more managing people and tons of stuff. And then we ultimately, I went on to start my own business with some people and, and um, that was, so that was kind of my path. So I've seen all these things that we're going to talk about from different perspectives. One is an employee, of course, one is a business owner, of course, as a manager of somebody else's business or a large business, a nationwide company where I was a branch manager. Um, and I've seen, you know, working for individuals in small companies where there might be a dozen employees and there was a, a business owner who owned them, owned that business. And another one where, you know, there was two large branches owned by a family where they were, you know, the three hours apart driving distance. And there was some dysfunction there and there's some things they did really well. So I've seen a lot of these things from different perspectives is my, my long-winded point there I'm making. So this is not all coming from Brian as a business owner or Brian as a coach to business owners. Some of these things are are really, when you're an employee in these situations, you can really see how these can get really ugly, um, especially if the manager or the business owner is just not the kind of person who values other people's opinions. I've had situations where I worked in those kinds of cases where it was very clear the business owner did not really care what anybody else thought. And the employees reacted appropriately. And they did some of these things we're going to talk about here. So, again, this is not to say that any of these methods are good or bad per se. They're all fine at times, and they're all not fine at times. So, uh, it's it's important that we don't. I don't want anybody to walk away from this conversation or after hearing this particular episode and, and say, "Well, if you're having kind of comp- competitive uh, competitive things going on at work, then then you know Brian thinks that's that's bad. That's not that's not what I'm getting at. But there are times where we are teaching people how to resolve conflict and then we're going to be upset with the results because they're not going to do it the way we want. So that's for sure. Anyhow, let's talk uh, first about why I think people oftentimes avoid conflict. And again, this is coming from a perspective of, of a person like probably all of you who was an employee at one time uh, in large companies and small companies. I've worked for great managers. I've worked for horrific managers. My my career kind of covers the the spectrum as far as 
large company, small company, local, regional, national, great people to work with and for, and absolutely horrific people to work with and for. And and you probably all have that same experience. So this is probably relatable for all of you guys. Um, one of the reasons people don't take on resolving conflict in the workplace is they don't know the criteria which should be used to make a decision or to point out what isn't working. So a company where you don't have your core values established and there's some real behavioral issues going on in the workplace, people won't really know how to address that necessarily other than they just don't like it. But if they say they don't like it, they don't know what your core values are. They don't know what the company's core values are. They, they kind of are, are exposing themselves a little bit. And they're kind of going out on a limb to say anything because what if the thing that they're bringing out is something you're okay with? So if we want people to be forthcoming and help us solve problems, which I'm always a huge fan of having the problems solved at the lowest possible level. And I don't mean low in a pejorative way where like I'm talking down to people, but, but we have organizational charts. The business owners generally at the top and, and entry-level employees are generally at the bottom. That's just kind of how it works. So I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not assassinating anybody's character for saying that they have a lower position than the supervisor or whatever. But my thought is to have the, the, the problems be able to be solved at the lowest possible level because I, selfishly, as a business owner, want to be focusing on other things. I want to be steering the ship, not in the, in the engineering room fixing you know, a broken bolt. I want to be steering the ship. I want my managers and supervisors to be running the departments, not solving small problems that employees could solve who aren't had who don't have the title of manager or supervisor. So my goal is that so one of the things that you will hear me stress a lot is we need to explain to people the criteria which should be used to make decisions and the criteria that will tell us what's not working, when things are working, when things are not working. If we don't invest the time to tell them those things, they can't possibly make good decisions. They can't bring up things that aren't working. And those could be procedural process-related things. They could be behavioral things. They could be my coworkers stealing from whatever, you know, stealing time or stealing material or creating havoc in other areas. If we don't tell them, here's the criteria we use to make decisions about things, they can't possibly always know when it's okay to bring those things up. So that's one thing. They don't know what the criteria, so they will just avoid it entirely. The second one, and I've experienced this again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago as an employee, they don't believe their point of view will be valued or taken into consideration. I've just flat worked for people who just made it very clear that I don't care what you think. We're going to do what I want, period, end of story. And your job is to shut up and comply. So in those environments, I can tell you as an employee and I saw people I work with who just were like, okay, well, we know the rules and uh, things are broken. Things are not working. There's conflict somewhere. Marching orders are to shut up and do it, do what we're told, and that's what's going to happen. And so they did. Uh, another one is deep down, people know that they are contributing to the problem, which would be very uncomfortable to acknowledge or to discuss for sure. So oftentimes people will not, they will avoid a problem because they know deep down they're contributing to the problem. Now, that could, that's not just employees. Business owners do the same thing. Business owners are very reluctant to put procedures in place because they like to call audibles. They like to be loosey-goosey, like Tuesday, I'm going to do it this way, and Friday, I'm going to do it that way, and I own the business, and I want the flexibility to do that. So I'm not, I'm not going to put procedures in place and be locked down. Well, then not having procedures causes problems. Well, we're not going to want to talk about procedure, not having procedures having, causing problems because 
it'll be exposed that I like to do things loosey-goosey. So um, this is not employer, employee, business owner, not business owner stuff. This is human nature stuff. If we know we're contributing to the problem, we're not going to be very likely to talk about it. So those are some of the reasons that avoidance happens. There's many others, but this is only a 20-minute podcast, so I'm not going to, I can't go into all of them. But point is, there are, there are real reasons avoidance happens when it comes to conflict resolution. And my goal is to expose those things, shine a bright light on it, and get past it. I do not want people practicing avoiding conflict and practicing um, hiding issues. I want things to be exposed. I want things to get better. I want the, the, the process to be improved. I want the culture to be improved. I want all these things to happen without me having to drive all of it. So one of the things I used to say to folks all the time to the point where they could, they could recite this, they would say it for me when new people would come to the company, which I thought was awesome because I didn't have to do it. And it, it validated what I, when I would say it. And that was, I would tell people, you have the authority and the responsibility to solve problems you see. So it's not just the authority like that you can do these things, but there's an expectation that you do these things. If you see something broken, you have the authority and the responsibility to bring it to my attention if you don't think you can solve it on your own or bring it to your manager or whatever. But you have an obligation to fix it. And I, so my way of getting out in front of this, avoiding things, was to t- just declare to people day one on the job, this is what I expect. I would also say things like, again, very early on, people's first day on the job, I would pull them aside. One of the things I would say is, you will learn from working with me that I care much more about things getting better and problems being solved than I care whose fault it is when something goes wrong. And again, I want to get out in front of this, people avoiding taking on conflict and resolving things that are broken because they don't know where they stand on it. They don't know if I want them to do it. They don't know if they have the ability to, to do it or if I'll validate their uh, opinion or, or care about what they think. I would get out of those things as fast as I could because I didn't want to have these kind of things lurking in the shadows and I have to like do investigations and figure stuff out. If it's broken, tell me or fix it or tell somebody who can fix it. It doesn't have to be me. Let, let's get it fixed. So those are my ways of kind of a, a getting out in front of this avoidance deal. But once we have decided to take on a problem consciously or subconsciously, we basically have these methods we talked about. Again, none of these are bad per se. Some are, you know, they all have times where they're useful um, and they can all be bad in certain circumstances much like anything in human nature in managing people and creating a culture and all these things in business, which is largely relationship focused, things are always fine until they're not fine. And um, anything can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how extreme we are with it. So uh, again, I don't want to come across like these things are bad. Let's take, uh, um, let's just look at each one, like what it looks like in action and kind of what the impacts are. So concession, again, not always bad. Employees have largely conceded and accommodated the fact that uh, coming to work regularly and on time is an expectation. Uh, They've conceded that uh, that's just the way it is in most cases. Now, some would argue it's happening less and less likely, you know, now than it did 20 years ago. And that's probably somewhat, there's some truth to that. But for the most part, people who want jobs understand if you want to keep your job, you come to work regularly and on time. They've conceded that. It's not a bad thing. They've also conceded things like, generally speaking, following your harassment and other policies without much thought or without much grief. It's just kind of the way it is. You have to do these things to keep your job. But when employees are coerced into concession about things they do have strong opinions about, 
even if it's the right decision, we can create problems. So this is this is one of those things I want to stress that it's not necessarily who's right or who's wrong. It's the process that matters here. Even if you're 100% right, you don't want your employees texting and driving while, you're, while they're driving the company vehicle. That's 100% the right decision. If they don't understand why it matters and they just get beaten over the head that they're going to do this, they, they may have some resentment about that. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just saying this is human nature. People are going to have, if they have strong feelings about it, they don't have an understanding of why they should do something differently. They're going to have hard feelings about being told to do something a certain way. Now, that's an extreme example. The texting and driving is an extreme example. I would hope most people would be able to wrap their heads around that without having to be, be uh, you know, really um, beaten down about it, I guess. As I hate to use those words, but, the, you know, without having to be like really have that forced on them. But I can tell you from personal experience, it, it, when we went through the, 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 the era when texting really became prevalent in, you know, 2015 to 2018, when it, whenever it was, I don't know the years exactly, Texting and driving was a thing that insurance uh, salespeople talked about a lot. It was causing a lot of harm, a lot of damage, a lot of, a lot of dollars being wasted. And it wasn't something that people just kind of got on board with. I shouldn't be texting and driving while I'm driving the company vehicle. They didn't just immediately hop to on, on doing that. They did have to be forced. They did have to be sometimes um, uh, coerced to get on board with that or go work somewhere else. Um, it was that way. So even on things like this, what we think, well, of course they're going to understand it. When it comes down to actually changing their behavior, if they don't understand why it matters in a compelling way for them, they're not going to do it or they're going to do it and they're going to be resentful of it. So um, uh, I, you know, people don't, if we just tell them what to do and don't give them the reasons why it matters, they won't necessarily understand why the other, why it matters. So um, I think I talked a few weeks ago about uh, the, the lawyer's office where they had a process. They wanted their employees to follow in, in taking paperwork. They didn't do a good job of explaining why it mattered, like the the feelings that they were trying to help the the client overcome and how they you know knew they were coming in feeling stressful and things like that. They wanted them to feel at ease and peaceful when they left. The procedure that they put in place largely did that. However, if they didn't explain that that's the goal that they were trying to accomplish with the employees and the employees are just told to shut up and follow the procedure – there's just a different level of compliance you're going to get. There's a different level of understanding of what we're trying to accomplish so people can think beyond the scope of what they're told to do or not do and make better decisions. So when we do this thing of, of um, wanting people to concede and just do what they're told in things where they have opinions about how things should go, and we teach them to just to be quiet and do what they're told, we can have some real negative consequences there, not only in how they feel about it and, and the kind of response they're going to have about, um, you know, wanting to, to hear have their voice heard, but also in their ability to make decisions and, and, and make good decisions outside the scope of what, just what they're told to do. So if the people didn't understand, we're trying to get folks under, to, to feel a certain way when they leave. We know that they're stressed when they come in. We want them to feel more at peace when they leave. If they don't understand that, they can't do other things outside the specific procedure they're told to follow to meet that goal. So those things are very helpful if we take the time to explain things rather than just tell them what to do. We're going to get a much better result. Um, the other thing I want to talk about on this is when we when it comes to people holding resentment on some things, you know, we've all, you've likely seen it when a group of employees sit back and just wait for the boss to fail or wait for the boss to be exposed. I'm not saying that that's a great thing to happen. I'm not saying that's a good thing for them to do. I would hope that they wouldn't do that. However. 
I've seen it happen enough times to, to tell anybody this is a thing that's going to happen. If people feel resentment because they're just told to be quiet and do what they're told often enough, they will find ways for retaliation or retribution or whatever word you want to use. Even if it's just sitting back, knowing something's going to fail and not saying a word and letting it happen, I've seen that happen. I've seen people wait for a, a boss, a business owner, a manager to just absolutely be exposed or to fail. They probably did it to me when I was that crummy supervisor way back in 1998. That, that I'm, I'm almost positive. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty, pretty certain that that would have been the, the case for me. They'll also make decisions and act based upon avoiding a similar result with something else they care about rather than acting in the best interest of the company. So if you're going to tell me that my opinion doesn't matter on this and I'm just supposed to be quiet and do what I'm told, well, I'm not going to bring up other things because I don't want to risk that happening on those other things also. This is a great place where you'll, you know, the, the saying you'll win the battle and lose the war. They will, they, people, if, if they're pushed too far, they will say, fine, you can have it your way. And when it fails, I'm not going to do a thing to help you other than when I absolutely have to. Now, one of the things I want to talk about here on this particular one is deal breakers. We all have deal breakers as business owners and managers, and we should have those things. I want to have about 10% or less of the conversations I have with employees be about deal breakers because I'm not going to be asking for their opinion on those things. I don't care if they like it or not that they, can, they can't text and drive. You either comply with that or you go work at Brandex. It's not worth the risk for me. But I don't want to have half the conversations I have with my team be about deal breakers. I want that to be around 10% or less for me personally. Your number might be different. You might not even have a number. For me, I want 90% of our conversation to be about things that they have opinions and input on, and they're going to help me solve problems, and 10% or less be things I'm just telling them, this is the way it is. I'm sorry. If you don't like it, you have to go work somewhere else. So again, you don't have to have that. For me, I do. I want that in my mind. I want it to kind of be a conscious thing. I'm, I'm deciding how often I'm having those kinds of conversations. The next one is competition. Again, sometimes competition is good. Uh, you've probably all worked, I've worked in companies where you had sales competitions or different kinds of things like that amongst group. You would separate the company into groups. You'd have you know, friendly competition. I, listen, that stuff is great, fine. But it's not always healthy. You've seen probably people unofficially competing for power in the office. People who don't, you know, maybe you have a, a handful of people in a certain department and they, they're all kind of vying for who gets to be the one who has the say. That's not always healthy. Uh, sometimes you have people competing for the boss's attention. Sometimes you have people competing for who's going to be perceived as being right or who has the most power, or who's the most popular. Those things are not uh, um, positive, I don't think. Those kind of competitions are not healthy. And when we let when we start rewarding people for whoever gets to be seen as being right, we really uh, are going to silence the other voices that will have a good perspective on the next problem. Maybe maybe they didn't have the best idea in this particular issue, but they will in the next one. And I want them to speak on the next one. So even if their idea is not the one we go with, I do not want to create a situation where being right is the end all be all. I want to create a situation where the process of people collaborating is what we're aiming for. Again, going back to that Teamster uh, job I had for you know, five years or whatever it was, there was kind of this competition of who had the most power. The The office folks would do things to, to make it known that they had the most power, and the folks out in the warehouse would do things to make it known that they had the most power. And I can tell you, the company absolutely lost money because of it. And I'm not saying that they like didn't make profit. What I'm saying is it cost them money for sure, and it cost them the customers um, in ways for sure 
because this competition was going on. It wasn't healthy. It was not positive for sure. And, and that company was not really ever, in, while I worked there, was not ever able to really resolve that. That it was the way it was when I started there and it was the way it was when I left. It kind of had this um, this thing going on at all times where this power struggle was just an unhealthy thing. In service businesses, if it's allowed, you the people if you if you were in a business where you're dispatching people to you know customers' homes or businesses, and the dispatch office is having a competition with the people in the field of who has more power and things like that, that's something we gotta get in front of. That's something we have to resolve. We have to have an understanding of you know who who's calling the shots and why and what to do if that's not gonna work. You know, what what do we do if if there's this conflict there? All right, next one, uh, I'm going to move a little faster. I'm getting a little long-winded here, running out of time. So next one is compromise. Again, very useful in some situations. Uh, You've probably, as a manager, use this in personality conflicts. You know, Sally agrees to stop doing X if John agrees to start doing Y. Those kinds of things probably happen more often than we would care for. We have, you know, personality conflicts. So compromise can be useful in those situations. However, compromise is one I'm not a huge fan of for a variety of reasons. One of the best ways I've heard um, compromise described is is this, a good compromise in one which results in neither party being happy. Okay, well, that is not the kind of uh, structure or philosophy I want to base my company's pr- uh, problem solving on, where nobody's happy at the end of this thing. And in fact, I might I might rank this down number four, even below the other ones, which you know, as we've discussed are not are not always awesome either. Another thing is a company that is commonly committed to compromise will find it hard hard to instill a compelling reason to stick to their competitive advantages. For example, if you're just if you've created this culture where compromise is what we always do, well, there's certain things you can't compromise on as a business or business owner if you want to get if you want the customers to call you instead of Brand X. There's certain kinds of people that you will not attract who are very talented if you're constantly compromising things. If you have no lines in the sand that you will not, you know, that you're just not going to cross. Some people who are really talented don't want to work in environments like that. And some customers who are really particular don't want to buy from people like that. So that is one that I would be ultra cautious about using as the, the common modality for, for conflict resolution. And the last one, of course, collaboration. You know, from the get go, this is probably the one that everybody's like, "Oh yeah, of course, that's one you're going to end up saying is is the most um, beneficial." And it is. Um, there's not really any legitimate downsides to this one, unless people are collaborating uh, it, because of some of the things we talked about earlier. Again, you've got the people who are just kind of been beaten down and told to shut up. They will collaborate to to um, you know work against the manager in passive aggressive ways for sure. That is not good collaboration. But generally, those extreme things aside, the downsides are generally the, the business owner will see that it's going to cost time and money to do this collaborative thing where we have to bring people in. We have meetings and those are unproductive and they cost money and we're not bringing in revenue and it's a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. Those are the kinds of things I hear people say when we talk about having collaborative meetings about you know solving problems or process improvement or creating procedures. But here's the thing with spending that time and money with the employees. The employees will learn what really matters. They'll learn why we have to do these things. They'll learn the criteria for which we make decisions. They'll learn what is will tell us we're on the right path and what will tell us we're not on the right path in a general sense and a specific sense. They will get a whole new perspective by being exposed to these conversations. And they will learn the process of collaborative resolution, which in my book is worth way more most times 
than the, the money we're going to spend for a particular meeting that might last an hour or two. If I can expose an employee a handful of times a year to this, this learning the process of collaborative resolution, pretty soon you don't have to have meetings and stuff just happens. They will do it on the fly. They'll do it out in the field. They'll do it when I don't even know they're doing it because now they know the steps to go about doing this stuff. If they don't know the steps to do it, they can't possibly do it. If they do know the steps, they're way more likely to do it. I'm not saying they will all the time or to the degree I would like, but it's going to happen a whole lot more if they know how to do it than if they don't, for sure. The other downsides, <clears throat> quote unquote downsides, the owner must give up control with, to allow this stuff to happen, which is very, very hard for some people. But the upside is the owner gets freedom. You give up control, you get freedom. That's the way it always works. You give up freedom, you get control. You get one or the other. You can't have both. Not until your business is is well way established, you have a leadership team in place, you know, all all these things that we're all striving for. Once you get to the end, then you have both freedom and control. You don't have both on the path. You get either control or you get freedom. If you want freedom, as I do and did, then I must teach people how to make good decisions so I can be free. If I want control, I don't teach them how to make good decisions. So I get always be the decision maker, but then I can never step away. The other downside, quote unquote downside, is the owner must trust the employees. But again, to do so, the owner has to teach them, and which is a good thing in my opinion. So uh, before we move on, I want to tell you real quick about something uh, that I put together uh, last year called the Business Owner's Freedom Blueprint. It's a course. It's a 12-module course. It covers everything from processes and procedures to developing and understanding why your customers should buy from you and your company instead of Brand X. It talks about things like how to diagnose root causes of problems, some of the things we've talked about in the podcast for sure. How to manage your team, of course, is a major part of this course. Uh, you know, how to do it in a way that without being afraid they're going to leave you. How to read a PL, including how to set up the reports and actually run the reports, how to, how to create the reports in a way that is conducive to making good decisions. Cash flow forecasting, succession planning, tons more, 12 modules plus three bonus modules, all for $197. So if that's something you think you want, go to siscourse.com, siscourse.com, as in service industry success siscourse.com to get that against 12 modules plus three bonus modules. Uh, I think it's a fantastic course. Of course I put it together. Um, but if you're looking for something to kind of walk you through in more detail, the stuff we talk about in this kind of podcast, that's a great, very inexpensive way for you to do it. So, uh, okay. Back to our conversation here. The first thing we got to do is ask ourselves, which of these four pro, you know, problem resolution ways, uh, methods we want our culture to be based upon most times. Of course, most of us are going to say collaboration, you might be in an industry, though, where you want competition. That might be one where you might be in something where that's more applicable for you. That's fine. Pick whichever one you want. Just I would say just be deliberate and intentional about this. Pick the one that you want and then assess where are you currently at relative to where you'd like to be. Are you really using the, the problem resolution um, modality you would like as often as you would like? Or do you need to teach your people how to do what you want? Okay, so uh, the four basic types of conflict resolution we talked about were concession or you might say accommodation there also competition, compromise, and collaboration. We also talked about avoidance, which is basically the opposite of resolution. Again, they all are good or bad, depending on how they're used. Sometimes they're very appropriate, very applicable, very useful. Uh, other times they're not. Other times they're very counterproductive and can actually hurt your culture and actually hurt the company's financial situation and the relationship people have with leadership and management. So, uh, these are things I think we should be intentional and deliberate about for sure. I won't go through all the details on them because we're running way over in time here. Um, don't forget to go to siscourse.com if you want to access that uh, business owner's freedom blueprint today. 
And if you haven't yet, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague who's a business owner in the service industry. And I know I'm asking a lot here. Give us a rating and review. If you could spare a couple minutes, that would be awesome. I really appreciate that. The reviews have been coming in. We're getting uh, getting more of those and, and lots of uh, ratings as well. So thanks again. And uh, sorry for running so long this week. That's it for this week. And I will talk to you all next week.